you are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 109. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker. I'm also a passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, motivation, and mindset so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Are you ready to get started? Let's do this. Empathy, though, is a step further. It's me kind of experiencing your emotions with you. Hello, hello, veggie lovers. Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. I hope that you are having a very plantastic day. I have a plantastic episode for you today from Dr. Aisha Akhtar. It is so good. I know you're going to love her. And I really, 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 really hope that you pick up her book or download her book on ebook like I did. It's called Our Symphony with Animals. It's I promise that it will touch your soul. Oh, it's so good. I cried. I laughed. I just felt it deep in my gut, the way that I feel empathy. But before I get to talking more about Dr. Akhtar and all the fabulous things that she's doing, I have an announcement. I have signed up for Patreon because I'm going to be honest with you. Running a podcast is not free. I mean, it can be free. Maybe. Actually, no, it can't be completely free because there's subscriptions that you have to pay for in order to um, get it onto Apple and all these things. But you can get on the really inexpensive level. And as your podcast starts to grow and as you're taking it to the next level, things get more expensive. And I pay somebody at the beginning when I first started this podcast, probably for at least a year, I can't remember exactly, I did all the editing and everything myself, which is why those earlier episodes probably aren't like super pleasant to listen to. So then you get a new microphone and then you start paying an editor and then, you know, you just want to get better and better so that I can deliver for you a superior experience. And I think that we still have a ways to go to get to that superior experience that I envision, that I want for you. Okay. So that being said, I've, I've really been thinking about this and going back and forth. Should I try to get ads on the podcast? And, you know, I don't think that that's a bad thing, but I just know that sometimes when I listen to podcasts and there's lots of ads, it kind of interrupts my flow and the conversation. So I'd like to try Patreon. If you just really love this podcast, if you are a veggie lover, if you are a veggie fanatic, would you please consider supporting me? You'll get perks. So if you go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the Dr. Yami, I will also link it in the show notes. 
then you can see that there's two levels, the $5 level and the $15 level, and you get special perks like bonus episodes and live Q and A's and fan requests and all of those kinds of things. So check it out, patreon.com. It would mean so much to me if you would support the show. We can pay for some of the things that we're already paying for on a monthly basis, but then hopefully take it to the next level. So that's one way you can support the show. The other way that you can support the show, which I'm also announcing here for the first time, is through purchasing through my affiliate links. So I have started a Dr. Yami's favorite things page that has all of the things that I definitely endorse and already use in my life. So these are things that I have used some for many, many years, love or have tried and support. And you can find that at dryami.com forward slash shop, S-H-O-P. So D-O-C-T-O-R, yami, Y-A-M-I.com forward slash shop. So go over there and see whether any of those products resonate with you. If it's something that you were thinking about buying anyway, would you consider purchasing it through my affiliate store? That way it can also help support the show and help support my YouTube channel, Veggie Doctor TV because in a few months, in a couple of months, I'm gonna start releasing more recipe videos, which I know you guys love, and also hopefully some more restaurant videos as things start to open up, visiting more fast food and regular restaurants, so that I can give you tips on how to make a plant-based lifestyle work in your day-to-day life, whenever you're going out to eat with your family and friends. How do you do that? I love making those videos, but also requires time and editing, And these costs, they just keep coming, okay? And even though I am a pediatrician and own my own practice, I'm spending a good eight plus hours a week doing my podcasting and all of this other stuff. So I would really appreciate your support. Patreon.com forward slash the Dr. Yami or dryami.com forward slash shop. Thank you so much for supporting the show and for listening and being a loyal listener every week. I appreciate you so much. You don't even know you give me life. Thank you. Okay. Now, if you want to join my newsletter and I'm telling you too many things to do, but I just tell you just in case you want to know what's going on, text the word fiber F I B E R to six, six, eight, six, six. And remember I have lots of free resources that you don't have to pay a dime for at dryami.com forward slash free, F-R-E-E, how to eliminate or how to replace dairy, how to replace meat, eating out guide, and on and on and on. Thank you so much, Carolyn E., for reviewing my book on Amazon. The title is Love Dr. Yami plus this book, exclamation mark. This book has impacted me in a positive way every single day since I started reading it. My daughter just turned one years old and I noticed her appetite dramatically decrease. If I wasn't armed with the reassurance and knowledge I learned in this book, I would be so much more stressed. I'll probably read it a few times just to refresh myself. The most impactful part of the book that has resonated with me has been the part where she explains that a toddler's job is to play. They'll fill their bellies until they're not hungry anymore and then be right back in play mode. I got this book for my sister too. 
to read too as she struggles with her quote picky toddler. I'm a huge fan of Dr. Yami and listen to her podcast and follow her Instagram. Thank you for all of the love and positivity you put out into the world. Aw, thank you, Carolyn E. I appreciate that so much. And thank you so much if you have reviewed my book or rated and reviewed and subscribed to my podcast. Next month, very soon, is going to be an exclusive series, pediatric series, nine experts, okay? Talking about nutrition and lifestyle medicine. So exercise, sleep. I haven't done an episode specifically on sleep before. We're going to be talking about sleep in babies and toddlers, physical movement, stress reduction, role modeling. It's going to be fantastic guys. So please subscribe so that you don't miss any of those episodes because there's going to be two episodes per week on this pediatric series. Remember that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. So if you have concerns about you or your child's eating, nutrition, or growth, please consult your health professional. Okay, Dr. Aisha Akhtar, MD, MPH, is a double board certified neurologist and preventive medicine specialist with a background in public health. She is the CEO of the Center for Contemporary Sciences, which is pioneering the transition to replace the use of animals and experimentation with effective human-based technologies. Dr. Akhtar is the author of the recent book, Our Symphony with Animals, and Oh, our symphony with animals on health, empathy, and our shared destinies. Combining medicine, social sciences, and stories, her book explores how deeply the well-being of humans and animals are intertwined. She is also the author of Animals and Public Health, which urges for the need for medical slash health institutions to include animals as part of the public in public health. Dr. Akhtar is a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. She previously served as deputy director of the U.S. Army Traumatic Brain Injury Program and commander in the U.S. Public Health Service Commissioned Corps. Dr. Akhtar has appeared in television shows and interviewed by national media. And I actually found her because she was one of the speakers in the Food Revolution Summit, which I was part of. And it was such a pleasure to hear her interviewed by John Robbins. We have a fantastic discussion. We talk about empathy. We talk about her journey in writing this book and it's, it's just a really great episode. I hope you get something out of it and please pick up her book, Our Symphony with Animals. And now on to the episode. Dr. Aisha Akhtar, thank you so much for joining me on Veggie Doctor Radio today. I am so excited about this interview. Thank you so much for having me, Yami. Well, I read your book, Our Symphony with Animals. I finished it a couple of weeks ago. And oh, what a beautifully written book. It is so emotionally captivating. It's well-researched, so beautifully written. But wow, what a journey it was for you to even write this book. Just reading it, I could tell like she went through so much emotion herself. So can you tell me about the book? What even inspired you to write it? And a little bit about your journey about writing this book. Sure, so um, 
I have to say, I, I never saw myself as writing nonfiction because I'm, if I ever thought of myself writing a book, it would be fiction because I tend to be a lover of fiction. Wow. Um, but I wrote a, a public health book, Animals and Public Health, and um, that was more of an academic book. Um, and, it, you know, it's an expensive book, it's geared towards the academic audience. And I was trying to think of how to get some of that information out to the general public. Mm. And um, so I, I, I decided to pursue what's called narrative nonfiction, which is what the book is. Basically, it's, and it seems to be the thing that more and more people are doing with nonfiction is um, imparting information through stories. Right. Yeah. So and, and that appealed to me as, as someone who likes fiction and, and loves stories. Um, and that appealed to my creative side as well. I, it's, and I also think that you dry facts don't really capture people's attention and it does not help people retain. Um, it, it's harder for people to remember dry facts. Mm -hmm. But if you impart information through stories, it sticks much right. better. And so, um, so I, I started to learn about how to write narrative nonfiction, how to go about it. Um, and then um, I decided to pursue that once, once I armed myself with some basic information. And then I just, I had no idea what it was gonna be initially. And um, initially, actually, I was barely in the book. It wasn't really gonna be much about me at all. And then publishers kept saying, no, I need to put more of me in, into the book. And that's not what I wanted to do initially. But so, um, so my story, my personal story, my childhood story kind of frames the backdrop of, of the book. And then my present journey, in a sense, to capture other people's stories about how animals impacted their lives, how animals affect our well-being, how we, how do um, how does our treatment of animals affect our well-being, both, you know, whether we treat animals well or we treat them badly, how does that affect our well-being? And so that was the present story, basically, that we threw out the book. And then and through that, I weave in the, the science information, the, the facts, the historical figures, things like that. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I just I was wrapping my brain trying to figure out what this book was going to be initially. And then finally I just decided I'm just going to go out there and just start finding what stories there are that are interesting. And when I took that approach, the book kind of fell together much more easily. Yes. And you're right. It is so effective. And I didn't even know this was a, a genre, narrative nonfiction, but it makes so much sense because you're just immersed in these stories and you, you want to know what happens and you, oh, wow, it was just really, really good. But really the main theme of the book is empathy, right? It's, oh, and it's just such a great topic, but can you tell us what is empathy and why is empathy so important in our world right now? Yeah, it's always been important. And it seems like there's a lack of empathy among a lot of people. I think people have always been that way. Uh, it's just coming out more and more in, in um, more obviously um, in many ways. But empathy basically is what holds society together. It what holds us together as a species and what holds many species together. It's, um, it's the not just feeling sympathy for someone. For example, like if you were to say you, you hurt your finger, I could say, oh, I'm sorry. And that's sympathy. Empathy, though, is a step further. It's me kind of experiencing your emotions with you. Mm -hmm. And 
it, so for example, if you if you are um, let's say you're a, a mom who just lost your newborn, for example, and you are sharing that story with another mom who lost her newborn, she can experience that with you, that emotional connection with you, having experienced something like that herself, or it could just be. You, someone else who's just very empathetic could experience that with you and really kind of understand what you're feeling and what you're thinking. It's it's a much more involved process than just sympathy and just kindness. This is really trying to understand how someone else perceives things intellectually, cognitively, and emotionally, and feeling some of that yourself. Now, um, you know, obviously we don't want to completely lose ourselves in, in another person in that sense. So there's there's a, a, a good fine line that you want to have. But the with an empathetic bond, that connection you have with another is much more stronger. It's much stronger than um, a sympathetic bond, for example. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I'm also a health and wellness coach. And during my training as a coach, which is a very different approach to helping people than the expert model as physicians are trained. I learned that empathy, one of the definitions is a respectful understanding of another person's situation. So you are able to, as we say, put yourself in their shoes, you know, um, not just be like, oh, they're there, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, it must be sad, but you actually take on a little bit so that you can kind of feel what they're feeling. So are there any downsides to empathy when it comes to taking a little bit of this feeling on? Well, the um, the potential downside is if, if you, which is what I've experienced, and I think a lot of people experience. I know um, even in the animal rights communities, when we we can have such strong empathy that sometimes it can be um, a little crippling in the sense that you empathize with someone else's suffering so severe, so much that it can um, paralyze you in a sense that you feel it so strongly that it, it can cause depression, anxiety, suffering in you as well. It makes you less effective, let's say, as an advocate or even as a physician, right? If you mm -hmm. feel it so strongly for your patient, you may be less effective as a physician if you don't have a little bit of a distance, a little bit. Um, but that, you know, I, 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 that doesn't, I, I don't think that's, that's far less of a problem than the flip side is not having enough empathy. It seems like the flip side is what we're really, uh, as a species, um, facing more of is that people don't seem to have enough empathy for others, um, at least not in, in our behaviors and our actions. So yes, if you, if you, it can, empathy can become overwhelming at times. If you're very, if you're a very empathetic person, you can feel someone else's suffering so much. But um, yeah, like, like I said, it's just, it's, I think that the greater problem is the other, is yeah. the lack of empathy a lot of people have. And you talk about this in your book after you visited the chicken egg farm and afterwards how you struggled, you know, you struggled with your emotions, you were feeling depressed afterwards. And I, I think that can happen. You know, I interviewed some ladies that they run a sanctuary. And I was surprised when I asked them, what's the hardest part about running a sanctuary? I expected them to say, oh, we have to get up so early and there's all this poop to clean up, whatever. But no, they said the hardest part is wishing they could help more, like feeling like there's so many animals that need help and they're just doing this little tiny piece. And then that 
it pains them. And I was shocked to hear that. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, that, that burden that you carry when you're feeling this empathy for other animals. But really what that is, it's a painful feeling, right? And as humans, one of the motivational triads in our life is to go away from pain. So, so for some people, you know, the pain is something that they're trying to get away from. So when maybe they start feeling some of these emotions, they want to get away from it as, as much as possible. Is there a way to make empathy, especially this type of empathy, when we're feeling suffering, is there any way to make it less painful? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think a lot of people are trying to study that now because a lot of, um, a lot of the like relief workers, um, humanitarians who go out to help um, impoverished folks, people in, in wartime and so on, face this burnout all the time. Yeah. This is a burnout advocates across many different issues face because you can feel so strongly and, and be so empathetic for others. Um, I think, so there, there needs to be, obviously we each need to do what we need to do to take care of ourselves as much as possible. And one of the things I, I do to help me overcome that kind of burnout is to, with my husband, we, we celebrate every little thing that mm -hmm. we can mm -hmm. just to remind us of, um, of the good in life too. Yes. So we, that, that's something that we do on a personal level. And then sometimes we, we need to, we need to be understanding if someone says they need to step away from things for a while, um, that there should be no shame. There should be no bullying people mm -hmm. to always work, always be that advocate, always, um, you know, never get, you know, you know, never, never take that time for yourself. And, and really you have to have that strong balance in your life. You have to. And I know in, in the animal rights community, there's been a lot of that bullying mm -hmm. historically, um, and I'm sure in, in many other types of advocacy communities as well. There's that kind of bullying that, well, you know, if you step away, those animals aren't being helped, for example. And yeah. we, we can't do that. We need, to, we need to support each other and allow each other to take care of ourselves. Um, the, the other thing I will say that what's, what is good about empathy is that empathy drives action more than probably anything else. And so this is something that we need to also remember, even as crippling as empathy is. I know this in my own life as well. I also know that it is what drives me to want to create change in this world. And without it, I, I would be far less successful in creating the change that I want. So I think we also need to appreciate the benefits of empathy as well, even as we, so even in the midst, like when I was, I, I did fall, I, I suffer from depression. Um, I have since I was a kid and, you know, I, I get these bouts um, of depressive episodes every couple of years, maybe. Um, and even in the midst of it, I do recognize that in the midst of my depressions, sometimes spawned by this great empathy I may feel for, for others, I do recognize that at the same time, it is what has empowered me at the same time mm -hmm. to make change. So I think, I think that's something we need to keep reminding ourselves of. Yes. Oh, that is such a great point. It's so motivating, isn't it? I mean, you see something and that's why there's advertisements on TV with these children that are starving and you're just like, ah, I'm going to do something right now. I'm going to call, I'm going to sponsor a child. You know, it's very motivating to have that empathy, 
But at the same time, you're right. If you're immersed in this world, you can almost get like a chemical burnout, right? When you're feeling so much of these emotions, all these chemicals surging through your body all the time, that it's okay to take a step back, recenter yourself before you go forward. But I think part of it too, especially when it comes to the animal rights movement or the plant-based movement or any people that are trying to make a difference in the world is that sometimes it feels like you're not making enough of a difference. It feels overwhelming. It feels like this is just like a tiny little drop in the bucket. I'm not doing enough. But what you're saying is that we have to believe that we are doing enough, that what you are doing does matter because otherwise you do burn out and it's okay to take a step back. It's okay to recenter yourself, refresh yourself, get strong enough again to go back in. But what you're saying is that there's some people that may need to increase their empathy. So there's some of us out there that maybe we have so much empathy that it can become a little bit too emotional, emotional burden for us. But then there's some people that may not have enough empathy. So what can we do to increase our empathy in a healthy way? As an individual, if you want to increase your empathy, I think it's it's really it, it comes down to spending time with others. So if you're trying to increase your empathy for women who are uh, victims of rape, for example, if that's what you want to do, then it really comes to reading about women who've experienced rape or being around women, hearing their stories and stories, I think. And, and there's there's been some back and forth about this, but it does suggest it, the research suggests that stories really do increase people's empathy for mm -hmm. another group. And mm -hmm. so that's definitely one way. And we don't do enough of that. And, and I will say reading even more so than um, perhaps in television or uh, movies might increase our empathy even more is don't know for sure but the the difference is that when you're reading you're more you're you're much more actively a participant in the process than when you're passively watching something on tv so that active participation when you're reading something you're kind of processing things more actively that might increase your empathy um, and and for there have been also programs that suggest that obviously the earlier we start um the the greater the the empathetic potential is in an individual so meaning that the earlier we start teaching children to be empathetic the more likely they will become adults who are empathetic and so um there are programs and and for example even um programs that have children learn to care for animals and and teach them about kindness towards animals not only do these programs suggest that these kids become more empathetic towards animals, but they also become more empathetic towards each other. Mm -hmm. And they, um, they're, they're better at socially navigating with each other as well. And so um, I, 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 the way I see it, empathy towards anyone increases our empathy towards everyone. So mm -hmm. the moment you open the door to, uh, you know, for empathy towards one type of group of people, you do leave that door a little bit open or more open than it was before for empathy towards other groups as well. Oh, so that's I think amazing. Anything, yeah, I think anything we do to increase someone's empathy towards another, it has the potential to have much broader um, implications. Yes. And I'm so glad you brought up children because that was one of my specific questions is 
what actions we can take to increase empathy in our children. And along those same lines, especially for those of us that are vegans and want to expose our children to that world and that worldview, how can we do it in a way that's healthy? So I definitely no expert on this, but I would suggest that obviously the it's it's about talking. I I think this is about anything um, with anyone that you're trying to who you're trying to impact and increase their empathy is is really talking through things with someone. So with kids, it's not enough to just say you're you're a vegan because you you know we we care about animals, but you 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 want to sh- explore with kids why this is important, why. Um, compassion for animals is important and have them engage in this discussion with you have them express their feelings with you as well go and and show kids um, these animals like pigs and 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 chickens go to farm sanctuaries and and show them these animals so that they can connect with these animals a little bit more Um, so it's 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 really um it, it, it needs it's not just an emotional empathy it's not just an emotional understanding it's also a cognitive Mm. understanding um so it's it's about um understanding not only what another feels but what they think and how they perceive the world and how they live in their world and that really takes a lot of dialogue and and um community you know just this back and forth communication with with another to really get them to understand to really feel that empathy towards another yes oh man that is so good and it just makes me think of the opposite of how we can squander empathy in children. And I think similar to something that you experienced in your childhood is this belief that animals don't feel pain the same way, or they don't, you know, get hurt or injured. I remember, you know, just being told, well, this is the way it is. We we have to have it this way. My family, um, they still are dairy farmers in Panama and they have large dairy farm. And I remember being told certain things like that, like, no, don't worry. It doesn't hurt them or things like that, you know? And so you're like, oh, okay. You know, but there's part of you that's still kind of like, I'm not sure, (laughs) you know, it seems like it hurts them, you know? And so what are things that we do routinely in our society and our world that kind of squanders this empathy? God, we do a lot. (laughs) What don't we do, right? Um, You know, I I think um, when you think about it, no kid is born a racist, a sexist, uh, I would say even to, to a great degree, a specious. No kid is born that way. It's society that teaches kids to be that way um, and then teaches them to become adults, feeling, thinking that in those, along those ways as well. So it, it's, we have, uh, from the very beginning with kids, we as as a society or as societies have really um, done a disservice in, in a sense in the way that we have truly squashed kids empathy uh, across the board in so many ways just by telling them no for example this group is superior to this group or you know boys are smarter than girls and 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 animals are here for us to eat or for us to wear or experiment on and so on and they don't feel pain what we need to do and and this is in a sense we need to unravel these myths, basically, these fairy tales that we give to kids. And that's what they truly are. They're fairy tales, the, the stories that we give to kids. And we need to unravel those. And we need to look at what it is that we're telling kids and take a step back and reframe things in a different way. 
Um, so that that's a much larger issue than um, than I would know how to tackle. But it does start with education, and I think empathy should be empathy and kindness should be as much a part of our educational system as learning math and science. Yes, yeah, because it could change our whole world. But you're right. I think we learn it as kids then the cycle continues because we continue to pass it down to our children and their children and on and on. So at some point, if we want to end that cycle, if we want to break that cycle, we have to be willing to go through some discomfort. And that's where that cognitive dissonance comes in that I experienced about nine years ago when I became a vegan and all of a sudden my worldview shifted and I'm just like, okay, wait a second. And, And it's painful and it's uncomfortable, but I came out on the other side and now I'm able to teach a different worldview to my children than the one I was raised in. But it does, it does require some element of discomfort whenever you're going to see the world in a different way. So one thing that I was curious about, and and we'll talk a little bit more about a certain individual that you interviewed for your book is if there are any genetic differences in empathy potential? Like, are there some people that just naturally because of their genetic structures, and I'm not talking about pathology here, but Mm -hmm. some people that for whatever reason, either to protect their own emotions or for other reasons that they are able to kind of compartmentalize and be like, okay, I want to have empathy, but it's too painful. So I'm just going to not have empathy in this situation. Are there genetic differences that have been seen in people? Yeah, so so I, nothing that we could actually pinpoint um, directly. There is um, there has been uh, many studies that suggest women tend to be more empathetic than men, and mm. I think that's probably people will say, yeah, that that probably sounds sounds right. Um, and like I can look at my husband, and he is able to keep himself more separate from others' mm-hmm. emotions than I am, for example. What makes him, other than gender? because it's not always gender, but that's, that is one potential factor that influences our empathetic ability. But what makes him um, less empathetic or what makes me more empathetic? Um, we don't know enough about that. We, we do know, you know, like you, you were talking about the flip side is that there are certain psychopathic traits in some people that can um, suggest that, you know, that, that we see associated with a decrease in empathy, but how, how, what, what causes, um, what, we, we don't have more information on that, I would say. We don't have any, we can't pin down saying this is, it's just genetic makeup that's causing someone to be more empathetic. Um, now, um, with all, uh, not Alzheimer's, um, wait, I'm, I'm blanking on the word. Um, what is it when kids, um, feel less empathy towards others? Um, Oh, never mind. I was blanking on the word, but there, you know, there, there are some kids who um, they seem to show some of these traits as well. But again, we don't know, we don't have the details on on why some people tend to be less empathetic or more empathetic in general. It does, it does seem though that um, education plays a huge role, and so regardless of what someone's genetic makeup education makes can can really overcome a lot of the obstacles that someone may face just because of their biological makeup and so um it it 
and and again the younger you start that education process the the more of an impact you can make in someone's ability to empathize with others you can squash someone's empathy by education mm-hmm. misinformation miseducation and you can increase someone's empathy by education as well mm-hmm. so i i i would think that um you know it, it's it's a great question but rather than looking at what genetic problems or what genetic makeup or um, that may lead to decreased empathy, we can spend a lot more time effectively looking at how can we use education to increase empathy. Yes. It's so fascinating. I wanted to just bring up another tidbit that I was thinking about after I read your book and as I prepared for this interview and whether there are any measurable chemical changes that occur when we're experiencing empathy. And the reason I thought of this is because I was watching the show with my kids called The World According to Jeff Goldblum. Have you seen that show? It's I so, have not, yes. It's so funny. And so Jeff Goldblum is an actor and we were watching the episode on sneakers. And so he went <laughs> to the Adidas factory and they do this testing that they're able to put these probes on athletes and see how they're reacting to certain shoes. It's their market research. It's fascinating. So they put this probe on Jeff Goldblum and he said, I'm going to try to replicate these feelings. So the, the guy, owner, whoever he was, was telling him what feelings that they try to uh, extract from this test. And so Jeff, Jeff Goldblum is like, okay, I'm going to act surprised and see if it comes up. And a lot of those things like contempt, surprise, those kinds of, he was able to replicate, like it came through on the computer screen. And then I was thinking, that's what makes a good actor is the ability to actually truly feel these emotions. That's how, whenever we see somebody on screen that we're like, that's a good actor. It's probably because they really feel it. And you're able to chemically, physically, somehow you're able to detect these changes. So do we know of any chemicals or hormones that are associated with empathy? Yeah, there are some, um, we, we do suggest that there, there, there have been enough studies to suggest that there certain hormones that help you feel good, um, make you feel more positive, actually increase your ability to socially connect with others and to feel more empathy towards others as well. And um, like oxytocin is one, it's not the only one, but that's one. And oxytocin is a hormone that was, that's produced. And um, it's, it's produced by women to help with their bonding with their, their, their newborns and to increase lactation when they're feeding um, their newborns and contraction, uter- uterine contraction during labor. Um, but it's also in men, it circulates mm-hmm. in men as well. And that's one one chemical the studies have shown that um, participants who um, inhale or um, are given oxytocin for example they're more altruistic towards Mm -hmm. others than Mm -hmm. those who were not given um, oxytocin that's one dopamine is another um, neurochemical that that might be linked with empathy as well and again these are just a few of the the chemicals there's also brain imaging studies that have shown that um, Stories can increase empathy, um, and some even suggest that meditation increases empathy in 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 what's in in what is um, basically activated in our our brain centers. And so, the, again, this is just all kind of preliminary, yeah. though. But we don't know enough. But it 
there, there's definitely a neurochemical process here. We are we are neurochemical beings. I mean that yes. that's that's we are chemical beings, right? So everything is linked to our neurochemistry in some way. Exactly how we don't know, but there there are some neurochemicals that again those that may help us feel good. We're more likely to be empathetic towards others when we feel better, when yeah. we feel more social, when we feel more positive and happier. And so the chemicals that boost those feelings can help us feel more empathetic in turn. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about my own experience, like you were talking about earlier in, it gives us that motivation. And usually my motivation is I want to help ease your suffering. You know, I'm motivated to help you feel better. I can feel your suffering. I want you to feel better. Like I know what better feels like. It's just so, so fascinating, so amazing. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about animals used in therapy. You had some just amazing stories in the book about how animals have completely turned the lives around of some people. So tell me more about animals in therapy. And do you think that we should be using them more frequently? It's a, it's a, I don't know. So, you know, I hate to think of, you know, when I, when I think of animals, I hate to think of that we're using them for our own purposes, right? Because they are individuals in their own right, and they have their own lives. Um, On the other hand, animals do seem to um, affect people in a way, many people in a way that humans don't. And and so when you have people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, military vets or rape victims or um, war, war survivors, or you have people who are marginalized for some reason. Um, in the book, I talk about some of the folks who suffer from HIV and they're, they're gay or transgender or, and, they, and they feel marginalized because of many of the, the problems that they face. Um, you know, it, it, there is a connection that people can have with animals that is much simpler than what we might, than what we have with other human beings, right? Because animals don't care. They don't care if we're black or white. They don't care if we're you're sh- tall or short. They don't care if we're, um, you know, if we're rich. They don't care about these things. What they care about is are we kind to them? And that's it. And so in that sense, many people who face trauma for whatever reason have been able to connect with animals and re-engage back in society because of those connections with animals that they weren't able to get with other human beings. You know, humans are complicated, right? Um, And with animals, it's not not that way. And so I would suggest that if we were to consider animals as therapy, always has to, we always have to keep in mind the animal's interests and their well-being as well. So um, the programs that seem to be the most effective are those that put those animals up front and their well-being up front as part of the process. Um, and when you're matching animals, for example, with someone like um, someone with PTSD, you have to think about the animal's well-being as well. It's not just to help that person, but you want to help an animal. And so some of the programs, for example, those that are um, training dogs who might not, who don't get adopted, who aren't going to get adopted in shelters, for example. So they increase these dogs' ability to get adopted and then pair them with people who could feel something out of that bond as well and could you know, gain something 
out of that bond that even goes beyond that companionship and the love that someone might feel with that dog or that cat or the other animal. So um, I don't, I, I'm not always a proponent of, you know, seeing animals as means to an end. Um, actually, I, I'm never a proponent of seeing animals as a means to an end. I think that if, if it's a, a relationship that works for both, for the human and the animal, and that, that has to be a criteria, then that could work. Yes. So mutually beneficial, but yeah, it gets tricky, right? Because in some ways we really love having pets and that has created a whole system of breeding and animals that end up suffering in order to become pets. And so that's another area of exploitation that there's things that we need to consider and think about that a lot of people never even think about. So yeah, I can see how that can be really tricky. One thing I wanted to bring up after I read your book is connecting with people with animals. Mm-hmm. I had a patient in the office um, that's very reserved and I was trying to pull this patient kind of out of their shell. And I remembered what you talked about in the book. And so I asked, do you have any pets? And it was like, flipping a switch. I could not believe it. And I was inside. I was so excited. I was like, Oh my God, it worked. (laughs) And so (laughs) we got to talk about pets and it, it just worked so well because it really just breaks down these walls and, and just helps you bond over this beautiful creature that means so much to some people. So it's just super amazing. That's, that's great. And I, I do think, uh, you know, for, for many of us, it's not always the case, but for many of us, you know, when you, when we're talking about animals in our lives, they're usually happy memories that we're thinking yes. of. Mm-hmm. And so um, then that does help people come out and, and talk more about themselves when you, when you ask them to talk about the animals in their lives. And so, yeah, you, you're seeing an example. You saw that happen before, before your very eyes, but it, it, it has been Talking about animals has helped people who have faced trauma. Um, it's helped people who, like you say, um, you know, they may be nurse in nursing homes or they may be in hospitals. They may be facing something. They may be feeling isolated or lonely. Um, and talking about animals helps helps these folks reengage with 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 other humans as well. Yes, oh, so beautiful. Okay, I want to talk about something that's a little bit interesting. (laughs) It was just so fascinating to me. So for the book, you actually interviewed a serial killer, which Mm -hmm. I think is just a very fascinating thing to do. But were there times either while you were in this process of learning about this person, interviewing them, or after you did it, that you regretted this decision? Ultimately, no, I did not regret the decision. And, and so there's a bit of a selfish reason as well as a, a non-selfish reason to interview the serial killer. One is as a neurologist, I, I've, I could have been a psychiatrist and worked on some of the most extreme cases, uh, human cases, because it fascinates me too in, in its own way. I find it really intriguing. And so the extreme pathologies that people experience has always intrigued me. Um, so in that sense, just from professional sense, trying to understand the mind of the serial killer was, you know, very, um, intriguing for me, but also, um, as 
what in the middle section of the book so most of the book is around the happy the good stories but the middle section i, I couldn't it wouldn't be complete unless i talked about how do we squash empathy for animals and what are the repercussions what how does that affect us as individuals and as a society when we lack empathy towards other other animals or we suppress that empathy and in order to really explore that i felt that it was necessary to really start with an extreme case right to look at like a, a serial killer who had killed women in a brutal way and killed lots of animals in a brutal way and to really understand how does someone turn out this way? How, how do you become this violent person? And um, so that was that was sort of the start of the research. And so it, it this is Keith Jesperson that I that I met, I spoke with and I met ultimately who was the um, who had murdered um, eight women and had also just killed countless animals in his childhood and his teenage years. And it, it was really important to understand how he became who he became. And even Keith came to recognize that his family and his neighbors, their, in a sense, support of his harming animals and his continuation of harming animals into his adult, early adult lifehood really played a role in who he became later on and in, 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 uh, as a serial killer and how he became violent towards women. So he even recognized that, that connection. And so um, it was, I think, I thought it was important to draw out just how the most extreme cases can happen before I even got into the societal cases of suppression of empathy towards animals. Because it's important to note that when we're looking at killer, it's easy to say, oh, it's, it's all because of this problem or it's only it's all all of his problems are because of his family his connection with his family and so on what we need to look at is what how do we as a society contribute to these kinds of violent people to the emergence of these kinds of violent people and as a society when we allow endorse or even by even tacitly allowing by not condemning basically any kind of violence towards anyone we are opening the doors for every type of violence towards everyone and so it was really important to show that by as a society in a sense that by allowing the keith jespersons to hurt animals we are creating that person we are part of the problem in creating who keith jesperson ultimately becomes as well wow yeah and like you said he there's some part of him that realized that because you dug deep and you found this letter he ended up ended up writing into a newspaper about an incident where an animal was abused. And I can't remember exactly what happened where he was pointing out like, Hey, we need to pay attention to this. We need to stop this because I did something like that. And look where I am now. I murdered all these people. I'm in prison, <laughs> you know, like, Whoa, like in a way it's like he was trying to help out of his own mistakes and things that he did. But there is hope, right? Because in the book, you also talk about New York and the animal protection unit. And I guess there's places that have these officers that actually go out to investigate um, crimes where animals are harmed and people are prosecuted and held liable for these things. So tell us a few of some of these hopeful things that are happening around the country and in our world that show that maybe change is coming. 
Yeah, so we have seen more and more laws um, statewide um, that are getting stricter and stricter about many types of, many forms of animal abuse. And usually they tend to be more so for, um, about animal abuse towards companion animals. Mm -hmm. So dogs and cats. Um, and um, that's where probably where the, the laws are the, the, the best in a sense, the most protective. Um, the, the situation you brought up was the NYPD, the New York Police Department. A few years back, they formed the nation's first ever squad of detectives that are solely focused on investigating crimes against animals. And that's the first that ever happened in this country. And there's a, a, a good prosecuting arm there um, and a good forensic arm there. So you've got this triad of legal prosecutors, the police who are investigating, police and detectives who are investigating these crimes, and veterinarians who um, get the pathology reports and, and can provide that scientific forensic background to help enforce these, these laws that have been enacted to prevent and, and to, um, to enforce um, these uh, protections for animals. The, um, so we're seeing more and more of that throughout the country. And we've seen that the FBI, even a few years back, had recognized how strongly violence towards animals is linked towards violence towards humans. Mm -hmm. and, and they they changed how they track animal abuse. Initially, animal abuse was put into an other category, meaning that the FBI didn't really track it. But a few years back, having recognized this link, they moved animal abuse to category A, meaning they moved animal abuse to the same category where murders and rapes occur because they realized that if you want to stop crimes against humans, violence towards humans, you have to also look at violence towards other animals. And so um, that's a really great positive change. Um, and so we, we're seeing some more and more of that throughout the country. What we are not seeing though, is the recognition of the institutionalized forms of violence against animals. Yeah. So the focus has still been on individual forms of violence against animals and only against certain types of animals. So again, mostly our companion animals, our dogs and cats. But we're not seeing this same type of recognition um, and, and understanding of violence towards animals in laboratories, even if it's dogs and cats, for example, or violence against animals in slaughterhouses and in factory farms and fur farms. So these institutionalized forms of violence that are very um, have have really received very little attention um, from sociologists, from law enforcement, from um, our legal system as well, um, in comparison to the individual forms of violence. But I'm I'm hopeful that we will start to, we're starting to start to see more and more of that recognition of how these other types of forms of violence are connected with all. So these, these institutionalized forms of violence towards animals can be connected with many other types of violence as well. But also to recognize that these forms of violence towards animals are important for their own sake, not just for how they impact humans, but also how they impact the animals themselves. Yeah. And so we're, you know, I think um, I, I'm, I'm, I am hopeful that we will start to more and more recognize these other forms of violence for what they are. Yes. I mean, it's just, just so overwhelming because whenever you think about animals on factory farms, it's just millions and millions and billions. And it just feels 
like so, so overwhelming sometimes. And and you're right. I think because of our beliefs and the way we're raised, some people may be more motivated by some of the stories that you told about how the workers in slaughterhouses suffer and how it affects their mental health and how it increases their risk of being violent and anxiety and depression, all those things. So some people, they may not be able to connect quite to the animal suffering yet because it's either too painful or they have that block, that empathy block there that, you know, they believe that it doesn't matter or they don't feel pain or whatever. But if they can at least start connecting to the workers there and knowing that for workers' rights, this probably isn't the best situation for people to be slaughtering hundreds of animals every day. You know, I mean, it's, it's a really big deal. Oh, it is. And we're seeing that now with COVID and, and a lot of the slaughterhouse workers being, you know, catching COVID, the, the coronavirus and being told that they have to get back to the slaughterhouses and, and, and the, the toll this is taking on them as well, not just emotionally, but physically. Oh, yes. Um, and I've even seen some reports of workers that work in chicken plants and catching certain viruses and different types of cancers. So, you know, there's, there's a lot out there that needs to be explored. Hopefully we'll move step by step, but unfortunately there's so much protections for these industries, you know, these ag gag laws and things like that. So, you know, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And that's my next question is, how can we each learn to be a voice for the voiceless? What steps can we take to help decrease the suffering of these animals that is being experienced on our planet? I think one of the things that everyone can do is really write letters to our mainstream newspapers. For example, the New York Times, the Washington Post. Post because quite frankly they are not and they need to they need to they need to step up and so there needs to be they need to hear from people that you need to start talking about that they are not doing their job in this sense they are not reporting they need to do more on the violence that the harm that ha happens to animals in laboratories and what's happening to animals on fur farms and and what's happening to the to the humans as well and to, and the environmental problems some of these industries cause you need to do more and that that is something that each one of us can do because um, it, it for me it's been very frustrating because even if you think about this the coronavirus that we have and how much it's how much of the emerging infectious diseases we are currently facing have stemmed from ultimately from our treatment of animals whether we're talking about the wild um, those live markets whether we're talking about the wildlife trade in general whether we're talking about factory farms and the emergence of swine flus and bird flus newspaper the our mainstream media still are barely talking about it if at all mm -hmm. and they are doing a an incredible disservice to the public by not educating the public about these things at least they're not reporting about these connections and so that's one thing that everyone can do is just really just pressure our newspapers, pressure our media to, to write more, to investigate these stories more and more and to write about them and to publish about them. To publish them. And then um, the other thing that each one of us can do, of course, if you're not already um, doing this, you know, cut out eating animals as much as you possibly can. And I would say cut out eating animals altogether. It's better for you better for the animals, of course, and it's better for the environment. There is no downside 
to not eating animals, no downside whatsoever. And the upsides are so tremendous. There's so many positives that happen to your own personal health, your own well-being, as well as the rest of this planet when you cut out eating animals. And um, then the the third thing I would suggest is that um, if you are at all involved in the medical fields, the public health fields, if you're a doctor or a nurse, public health specialist, we need to become more accountable about these issues as well. And we need to be um, investigating these issues and talking to the public and reporting to the public about how our well-being and how our health is connected to the treatment of animals. And we have not done a good job as a, as a, as a profession. And I'm, as a profession, I'm lumping all of us together, yeah. um, public health and, and, and doctors and nurses. And so we need to do more on, on that front as well. And um, more like what you're trying to do right here is try to get this disinformation out to, to people to say, look, there is a strong connection between our well-being and the well-being of other animals. And if we continue to ignore that, it's going to be at our peril, as we are seeing with the coronavirus right now, as we are seeing with the high, the ridiculous death rates from obesity, from diabetes, from heart disease, from stroke. We are seeing this, we're seeing, as we're seeing, and we will continue to see more from the impact on our environment from so many of these industries and how we are harming ourselves. We are poisoning our water, we're poisoning our land, we're poisoning our air, we're causing climate change because of our treatment of other animals. And so we need to draw those connections for the public as well. Oh, fantastic. Such great tips. So actionable. Now, let me ask you a question about the first tip, which is to write letters to the newspapers. Are you talking about doing opinion pieces or how, what do you do? You just write and say, hey, can you cover more of this story? Because I've never done something like that. So can you help us understand what's the best way to go about that? I would say both. Um, So if you don't feel comfortable writing an actual opinion letter, um, for example, a full, um, so there, there are three ways you can contact newspapers and three ways pack. One is you write opinion op-eds um, and usually they, they expect some kind of expertise in something. And that's, and, and I will say it, it can be very hard to get an op-ed out there. It can be incredibly hard. The other way is to react by sending a letters to editor. So they're more likely to accept mo- people's responses that way. So if you want to start, if you see something about slaughterhouses and, you know, what's happening with the coronavirus, and if you want the risk of infectious diseases that are happening from factory farms and that is, um, they, I, I've seen with a lot of the media, they say, you know, pitch, if you have an idea, pitch to us or something like that. And so there's contact information you can find. And I think just the more they hear from the public saying, you need to do more on this issue. You need to write on this issue. You need to report on this issue. The more they hear that, the more they realize that their public want, their readership want, they want to, to see these stories. Um, I can't say for sure that they will, that it will work, but um, I think that that's, that has a greater chance of working than, um, than trying to um, affect change with other types of industries. For example, um, you know, if we're trying to affect change within animal agriculture that's going to be a harder battle but so it might be an easier battle starting with media and trying to get them to 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 focus more on these issues okay fabulous what do you wish more people knew 
I really do wish more people knew just how strongly our well-being is connected to the well-being of other animals. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I think that uh, people, there are more people who are aware of that to some degree now with the coronavirus and how that linked ultimately to how we treat uh, other animals. But there, that, but it's not pervasive, and people are still thinking the problem. Most people are thinking that the problem is these wet markets in China. Yeah. And they're not thinking about live markets here in the U.S. They're not thinking about the overall trade, the wildlife trade, the, the trade in animals, which is America is one of the top participants in this trade. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking about the link with industrial animal farming. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there there needs to be I wish people knew more about this. And again, this comes back to where I think that public health agencies have failed us and not drawing this link for the public and so has the media yeah. in many respects they have failed us in the sense of not educating people about these links not reporting on these links yeah i mean because one of those things that when you hear about it you're like what <laughs> it just feels yeah. like a whole nother world like how come i never heard about this before it's like it just feels foreign and, and different so i think the more we learn about it the more we talk about it the better because people can be informed and then they can start making better decisions that decreases the prevalence of these kinds of practices well what personal habit are you most proud of <laughs> how did you develop it and how do you maintain it oh god a personal habit <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, wait. I think I'm, I'm going to go with gardening. Um, I, I'm, I love to garden. Well, I like it when I'm not being bitten by mosquitoes and, you know, <laughs> covered with poison ivy. Um, but it, it's, it's something that I, I truly like. And because for one thing, um, I'm creating something of beauty. Yeah. in in my world and that that's incredibly important to me i'm creating habitats for other animals um there's a lot of native species that i plant that other animals they find food um that, that are food sources for animals and it's also something that um it's a it's a, it's my form of meditation i guess mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not good at meditation i think i've tried it and I, I i i'm not good at that but gardening is sort of my form of meditation in the sense that it's a very calming thing most of the time it's a very calming activity and i feel connected with my world and uh, i'm i feel that i'm i'm able to produce something of beauty and or produce food that feeds my family for example and and so that the fact that i've maintained that over many many years despite the fact that there seems to be more mosquitoes in the washington dc area now than there ever was before um and the summers are hotter than it ever was before the fact that i still go out there and i'm still weeding the garden and i'm still maintaining this garden year after year after year i think i'm kind of proud of that oh that's so lovely and yeah as soon as i pictured you gardening and, and tending to this beautiful garden that you're so proud of that's the first word i, I thought of actually is meditative so i wasn't surprised when you said that it it has that effect for you, not all the time, but hopefully a lot. Of the time. <laughs> when, when I'm not cursing the mosquitoes and the poison ivy, yes, and it has <laughs> oh that goodness. effect. And you know, it's it's nice because you see the results pretty quickly too. Mm -hmm. And so even um, when it's it's hard for us when we're you know advocates for anything, change can happen so slowly. Mm -hmm. And when I'm gardening, I can see results pretty quickly. 
and so that that's a nice thing to me too and you know it's i i can't control everything in the world i can't change everything in the world but i can change this little plot of land that i have and make it something that's a, a, a more welcoming place for others and um and i can make it a thing of beauty so that gives me also gives me a sense of accomplishment mm -hmm. and that helps me um balance out the the frustrations I may feel in other areas and other parts of, of my life in, in the parts that I cannot necessarily change or change as quickly as I'd like to see it happen. Oh, that is so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, Dr. Akhtar, I just love your work. Thank you so much for putting so much love and time and energy into what you do and this beautiful book that you've written. I hope that everybody reads it immediately. You won't regret it. It really will change the way that you think about empathy and other animals. I would like to know how listeners can connect with you. And you can, again, talk about your book or do you have any other services that you provide? Tell us more about how we can get in touch with you. So um, I do have a website. You can just Google my name, Aisha, A-Y-S-H-A, Akhtar, A-K-H-T-A-R, and you'll, my website will come up and there's a contact page if you want to reach out to me. I love hearing from people. I also just started in May. Um, I um, started a new position. Um, so now I'm the CEO and the president of a new nonprofit organization called mm -hmm. the Center for Contemporary Sciences. And our mission is to replace the use of animals in medical experimentation um, with more human-specific testing methods. So it's a win-win for humans and animals. And so um, the, as we develop our website for that, as, as we move forward, that, that's another way to reach out to me as well. Oh, wow. That is such great work. Thank you so much. Well, before we leave, I would like for you to give us one call to action for the week. How? Can my listeners improve their lives this week with one thing? That's a hard one. <laughs> um, uh, what I would say is one one small thing. Go out and create, um, share a great vegan recipe with some friends and family. That's pretty easy, I think. Share share a good recipe with people. And I'll tell you that this is incredibly popular. So being on social media. I know that one thing that's going to get a lot of likes and a lot of engagement mm. is good recipes. You post yeah. an easy, delicious recipe, bonus points if it has chocolate <laughs> and people <laughs> all are all over it. So I think that people, yeah. they want this, they want this information. They want to know how to eat plant-based vegan food in a delicious way. And when we are able to show them that, hey, there's no deprivation, you don't have to sacrifice here. Believe me, it's going to be yummy. Then it makes people less intimidated, more likely to try this lifestyle. Well, absolutely. Dr. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for all of your work and for being a guest on Veggie Doctor Radio today. That's so kind of you, Yami. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. <laughs> Thank you. You as well. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. And I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. 
please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day. We're having broccoli.